Apple Card is the perfect cashback rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. Hacks is back for season three, and so is the official Hacks podcast. In each episode, Hacks creators Lucia Agnello, Paul W. Downs, and Jen Statsky speak with cast and crew members to unpack the Emmy-winning comedy series. You'll hear Hannah Einbinder and Gene Smart speak to their on-screen dynamic, along with stories from the show's writer's room, on-set antics, and creating the world that Deborah and Ava inhabit. Watch Hacks, streaming exclusively on Max, and listen to the official Hacks podcast on Max or wherever you get your podcasts. Right. Sometimes I dream of becoming an actor. Have you ever dreamt of becoming an actor? Maureen, what is it you think I'd do for a living? Never mind, sounds like you need the New York Film Academy. NIFA offers workshops, BFA and MFA degrees and summer camps in filmmaking, acting, journalism and more, online and on campuses across the globe. To make films alongside industry professionals, explore more at nyfa.edu. Thanks, Brett. Thank you, Maureen. Look out, it's only films to be buried with. Hello and welcome to Films to be Buried with. My name is Brett Goldstein, I'm a comedian, an actor, a writer, a director, a screenwriper and I love films. As Lao Tzu once said, to the mind that is still, the whole universe surrenders. So do not watch Uncut Gems straight before bed. You know what I mean? Excellent advice, Lao Tzu. Thank you. Every week I invite a special guest over. I tell them they've died. Then I get them to discuss their life through the films that meant the most to them. Previous guests include Barry Jenkins, Himesh Patel, Sharon Stone, and even... <laughs> but this week, it's the brilliant comedian, podcaster, and speaker, Callie Beaton. Head over to the Patreon at patreon.com forward slash Brett Goldstein where you get an extra 20 minutes of chat, secrets and videos with Callie. You get all the other episodes with extra stuff, everyone telling the secret, beginnings, endings. You get all the episodes uncut and ad-free and mostly as a video. Check it out over at patreon.com forward slash Brett Goldstein. So, Callie Beaton. Callie Beaton is a brilliant comedian and podcaster. You've seen her on Live at the Apollo. You've seen her on Cats Done Countdown. You've seen her on all the panel shows and all the radio shows. She's very, very brilliant. We recorded this a while back on Zoom, and I really think you're going to love it. So that is it for now. I very much hope you enjoy episode 265 of Films to be Buried With. Hello and welcome to Films to be Buried with. It is me, Brett Goldstein, and I'm joined today by an actor, a writer, a TV exec, a podcaster, a panelist, a hero, a radio show megastar, a TV star, and an incredible stand-up comedian. Can't believe she's here, but she is here. Please welcome to the show. It's the brilliant, it's Callie Beaton! What a generous introduction. I think that's the best ever. Callie, nice to see you. How are you? I'm good, thank you. I'm just landed from Spain back in my kitchen. Only I'm not, am I? I'm not, because I'm dead. Oh, shit. Oh, you <laughs> Oh, you know about that? Oh, that's never happened. <laughs> that's never happened before. Yeah. 
Well, we should probably talk about that. But just as a general hello before we get to that, I suppose. Uh, <laughs> very nice kitchen, by the way. It looks fake. It does look fake. Um, I thought that was a real it's compliment. Very clean. Yeah, so the only kitchen you've ever seen that's so perfect, it looks fake. It looks totally fake. And I say that with, with respect. It's totally not a virtual background. Yeah. Uh, is your house normally this clean? Yes, the kitchen is, this bit of the kitchen's clean because I tend to do recordings from such places, yeah. Is, the, is If you were to spin your camera around, is everything chaos? It's not too bad. You probably think I had a slight issue that things are so immaculate. Yeah, you probably oh, wouldn't think okay. I was the most fun type. How was Spain? It was lovely. It was really nice. I was there um, filming some stuff and seeing my daughter who lives over there. We got... um. We got trashy tattoos. Oh, nice. We got the same the ones. listener, she's holding up a beautiful heart tattoo on her wrist. Yeah. So we got those. Uh, mine's slightly infected. Hers is fine. Oh, shit. So that's good. <laughs> yeah. We shouldn't have gone to some bloke around the back of a tapas bar, should we, after a few beers. Oh, we should wow. have had it done properly. What's your, what's your daughter doing out there? She is working out there. So she lived out there for a bit. Well, she's, she moved. My kids are half Dutch. And she moved to Amsterdam when she was just 18 to study wow. Spanish and then moved to Madrid to do a master's in Spanish and now she stayed on there to work. So she's moving away from me in increments. Oh, I'm sorry to hear that. There are two things in your, maybe you're sick of talking about them, but they are interesting things in your biography. One is that you were the only girl in an all-boys school. Yes. How does that happen? Was there a huge error? Well, I'm sure you've talked about this loads. Forgive me for not... It was a booking error. No, it was because my parents ran a boarding school uh, in the middle of nowhere in Dorset and it happened to be a boys' school and I happened to live in the grounds of the school and therefore it was the school to which I was sent. I should add I wasn't like 16. I was eight when I was sent there. I, I left when I was 13, by which time a couple of girls had joined but it wasn't the um, it, it wasn't a recipe for you know they say sort of comedians are all misfits and kind yeah. of band of rogues. I think you start early if you're in the in a school where you're quite that much of an outsider. I think yeah. the, the land is yeah the grass is sown. Do you think it made you think about boys in a certain way that has stuck with you? Do you know what I mean? If you were in this environment where you it was just boys, it must you must be seeing sort of a different thing than most people are seeing. I think I never really thought about being a woman or a girl in a male environment until I was in my 40s. And I I look back at it and my entire life has been in environments that were largely male. Um, I think when I first got into boardrooms that were entirely male, apart from me, I didn't really even think about the fact that I was the only woman. I think I was so used to being in those environments and it didn't occur to me to sort of think yeah. about it or think if it was a disadvantage or it's it's taken me about four decades to realize there is sexism and, and patriarchy I think I thought mm. I was part of the problem that's fantastic so the other part of your biography that is fascinating to me is that you were a tv exec yes you you left that to be a stand-up Yes, I'd have had you'd have been wanting to talk to me much more um, 10 years ago than you probably do tonight. <laughs> so, yeah, it was, I did make the switch from, yeah, behind the kind of cameras to on front of them. And I wasn't always, I was in comedy. I worked, I worked with Comedy Central on and off since the South Park days, the origins of South Park days. So right yeah. back in the beginning and whatever it was, 96. So I've worked with kind of comedy and I've done various jobs with people like Tiger Aspect and, and sort of different production companies. But my whole TV career wasn't all about comedy. But yes, it was all about telly. And it was all about being the other side of the camera. 
So great that you did this. Do you, do you, have you ever had a gig with someone that you rejected as a TV exec? Yes, but they wouldn't have known that I had anything to do with oh. the rejection. <laughs> so I'm just flying in. But I have had to beg to get into parties in Edinburgh, parties where they'd be begging me to come in if it had been a couple of years earlier. I've gone literally from on the list. Wow. Of course, you can come into Cali Who. So it's a pretty big status drop I've managed to wish upon myself. No, it's the opposite. It's the opposite. Cute. I mean, very exciting. So how long have you been doing stand-up now? About seven years, nearly eight years. So yes. So a fair while, I think, yeah. Have you had to go and pitch TV shows to your old gang? Yes, I've been really, I've been really funny about not using my kind of little black book, which I know isn't your question, but I've almost gone the other no, way to that. sort of, yeah, to yeah. sort of not do that. Also, because I know from, as you know, you've got to be careful what you wish for. You've got to be ready for the things you then get. So it's all very well hustling your way into a show. But unless you're ready to be doing the show, it would be the last hustle you ever did. So I sort of think there is there is something to be yeah. said for you getting the opportunities when you're meant to get them, which isn't when you've been going five minutes. Obviously, I'm still quite new relative to stand-up age. So I, But I have now, yeah, now it, it's funny that the TV channels for whom I've done nothing yet are Comedy Central and Channel 5, both of which I used to work for. So when I was at Paramount, yeah. you know, Viacom CBS, we owned both of those. And I do think I've just done a little thing for Channel 5 and I think they've just realised that I don't still work there and they've just started to think of me as possible talent. So it's been really weird. And I think they literally just couldn't, yeah, they just couldn't make the leap that I changed to doing this. You went in for a meet with them and they all sat next to you on the sofa like, who are we meeting today? And you're like, me! Who are we meeting today? Have you got the me. spreadsheet? How's the P&L going to look? Is there, are we going to make enough money off this? And you are on all the, on all the panel shows. You've done very well on other panel shows. L- lots of them. Not all of them, but yes, lots of the nice ones. Is there a key to it that you think you've learned? I think there's a key to it, which is also a key to life, the universe and everything. Oh, well, I'm glad I asked. Yeah, it's about not waiting until you've got a perfect thing to say, whether you're in a panel show or you're in life, because it's really easy. And women, and this is a gendered thing, lots of research about this. Women tend to wait until they've got really the right thing to say before they'll say something where blokes will go diving in, um, you know, much sooner than that. And if you're waiting and thinking, I'll just wait until I've got the exact right joke, what it is, it's, I would call it making the edit. You've got to make the edit. And by make the edit, I mean, get stuck in, say some stuff, give them lots to work with. Don't worry about being the funniest voice in the room. Just worry about being your voice in the room because everyone's seen all the other voices. You're the one that's the one that they haven't seen if it's a new experience being on the show. And I think that's such a good thing to know in life as well. It doesn't have to be perfect, you know, just get something out there and then you're in it and then you've occupied your space and people will listen. I love it. You know, I'm obsessed with, I'm sure I've said this a number of times on this podcast, but one of my favourite quotes is Lord Michaels about SNL that it doesn't go on because it's ready. It goes on because it's Saturday night. There you go. Yeah, it's perfect. And that exactly sums it up, doesn't it? Yeah, Yeah. I think that's really good. I mean, that's not to say you shouldn't put some thought into it. <laughs> like, you shouldn't. But I definitely think perfectionism can ruin you and stop you doing anything. Yeah, and once you start, once you're in, because then you're in the ring, aren't you? And then, of course, the funny bits are the bits that happen with other people and you've made yourself yes, part of that yes dynamic. Ending. Yeah. If you're with good people and you say something vaguely funny, they will yes and it and make it really funny and then you've you've got something going. 
Yeah, and you've got and the bits that you get all the credit for, and rightly so, on those panel shows is the bits that are, you couldn't have written and you couldn't have rehearsed. Yeah. And those do come out of diving in and having that sort of interaction with somebody. So I definitely think I do lots of sort of TED talky stuff and speeches and stuff like that. And it's that's a math and I do loads of stuff for kind of removing obstacles to women in kind of work in life and business and stuff. And it's always about that. It's like don't wait to be perfect, don't wait to be like the other voices in the room that are in that case often male. Just have right. just have the confidence and your voice being worth hearing and don't don't second guess it. Let's get stuck in. I imagine that you as a comedian would absolutely fucking smash a TED talk because <laughs> no one's expecting it to be funny. Yeah, it must a, be the gig of your life. <laughs> it's the lovely I do say this to comics who hate corporates and rightly so so I'm just checking the dog's not having a I think he's just got the hiccups um because I get billed so I do do sort of awards hosting and actual comedy sets at corporates which like everybody else every other right thinking person finds really difficult but when I like first thing tomorrow I'm off to do a, a kind of speech somewhere and yeah I always ask them not to bill me as a comedian they can say I'm like a performer a writer whatever and they say some of my credits from my tv life like South Park and Spongebob, but they don't say I'm a comedian. I will always reveal that, a story. And increasingly, obviously, sometimes people will know, but not lots of people don't know. But it's such, you know how easy it is when the expectation's really low. <laughs> you can, uh, I'm like, don't ever, don't ever say I'm going to be funny. And oh, like be being great. in a play. Yeah. <laughs> like people watching a play. That's your, that's the dream audience. Exactly. It's exactly that. I did get brought on to do an after-dinner speech that was meant to be like a businessy one. And he brought right. me on. He was like, you'd have seen her on live at the Apollo and she's going to blow the roof off and she's so funny. And and they literally had told me to do a business thing with sort of business take. And it was the hardest gig of my life. Everyone was like, oh, oh God. God, this is, yeah. Make this stop. Oh, God. Oh, God. And so how much of your life is circuit gigs versus these things? How much of your percentage of your time is doing regular gigs? I guess like overall, because I do a few different things as well. So I guess overall, I probably spend about 40, 50 percent of my time doing comedy. And I always realise when I actually spend all my time doing comedy. So in the lead up to Apollo, I obviously cleared the diary and just did nothing but stand up for six weeks. And I got so much better in six weeks. I was like, oh, if I just did this... If I did this, I mean, I'm sure the deadline of that, I'm sure every comic will say, yeah, I kind of miraculously got a lot better in those six weeks. But I think if I, um, if yeah, it, I do sometimes think, you know, and it goes in phases, you know, I'll have yeah. two weeks of nothing but stand up and then two weeks of nothing but corporates or radio or whatever. And it definitely, you know this, that you, it's, you get into another world that's quite far away from, it's quite different yeah. bits of yourself, which sounds really wanky, but it is sort of true. No, it's true. I guess we should talk about what you what you said at the beginning, which has never happened before, but you, you, you have died, you're dead, and you, not- you noticed, and that's unusual on this podcast, and, and I, I remembered too. What, how did you die? I think there's only one way that anyone would have wished to die, and I'm really glad I died that way, and that was the same way as Isadora Duncan. So I had a beautiful scarf flowing at the back of a convertible, and it got caught in the wheels, and that's how I died. And Grace Kelly died in exactly the same, so not the same way with the scarf. But yes, Isadora Duncan died in that way in the in the 20s. And then 50 odd years later, on the same date, Grace Kelly died in a similar motoring accident, but without the scarf. But Isadora Duncan famously died on a jaunt with a young man she didn't really know much about, choked on her own beautiful headscarf. 
got hung herself on a headscarf whilst driving. Yeah, he was driving. She was in the passenger seat and her beautiful flowing headscarf got caught in the wheels at the back of the convertible of a man she'd only met an hour before. Hell of a way to go, isn't it? That poor guy. That poor guy. What a nightmare. It's a bad a first tra- date, what isn't it? a traumatic date, that is. Yeah. And that's before Tinder and stuff. Yeah. And he probably didn't know her name. What a bloody nightmare yeah. that is. Yeah. And, and she that's was how you went. she was young. I went there somewhere, but she had um six adopted daughters, Isadora Duncan, and they carried on her sort of stuff in her image, and they were called the Isadorables. Come on. So this is, you know, this is a good way to die. So Grace Kelly died exactly the same date, about five decades later. But no, not by scarf. Not by scarf. scarf. And but I've picked up the scarf again and I've gone like is I've gone full Isadora. Beautiful. I mean not for the guy. I do worry about the guy. Uh, it does seem pretty like hor- horrendous for the guy. But yeah, but then he was trying to pick up a famous dancer with whatever line he had and whatever car. So I. It seems like I don't know that he's. I just don't know. It just seems very traumatic for everyone that story. But who are you? Who's driving when you get killed by a headscarf? I'm dri- I'm driving because so, I'm a very independent modern woman. So I'm driving with That's my own fine. headscarf. Yeah, I, no one's That's implicated. Fine. Just me. The dog's not even in the car. Just me. How How old are you when this happens? How old do you want to be? I think we'll go forty five. So you're forty five. Very young to die. Tragic. It wasn't just to be clear. It was an accident. Yeah, it wasn't. It wasn't an elaborate suicide. Right. Okay. You're 45 years old. Jesus, so young. I mean, people will talk about you. 45, people will say, what a tragic loss. What do you think happens when you die? I think your spirit soars around the place, having a lovely connection with the people that you used to be with on this earth. That's nice. Yeah. What, so the people the people know that? Yeah, I think like, I think my kids would sort of know I was in orbit the dog who sadly outlived me would sort of sense my presence. Yeah, mm. I think it's like a sort of feeling, you know. You take the people with you that you love, don't you? There's still a bit of, you know, people yeah. that you love are still there with you. And I'd like to think I would be there, not in a haunting way, but in a sweet sort of reassuring way. So you're sort of floating around, sort of like the Invisible Man, sort of flying around and you check in with your daughter, you check in with your dog. Yeah. What's happening sort of between just watching things? Yeah, not some. I mean, you're making it sound more creepy than it is. So I wouldn't be like just nosy. I wouldn't be like, "What's my daughter? Do- who's my daughter dating? And uh, what's yeah, going yeah. on?" And I, but I would be, yeah, just a sort of reassuring the sense that someone's there. You know, a little breeze across the plant in the garden. Someone be like, "I wonder if that's mum." That sort of thing. You know, gentle, a gentle, warm presence, which may or may not be how they see me in life. Right. I guess I'm just trying to work out how you, how you're using your time. Yeah, Is it just you're I constantly think... being a warm presence? Just being a warm presence. Like what's happening in the gaps when they're not in the garden? Yeah, and just trying to trip up like Tory MPs in a sort of like right, cause, right. cause sort of, not death, but, you know, perhaps not being able to work Mischief. for a few months. Mischief, sort of dropping tapes of illicit gatherings at the, on the mirror's doorstep, you know, things like that. <laughs> Just a little bit of ag- a, a little bit of political agitation, a little bit of fighting for social justice, and then some general good karma, namaste, spirit type oh, stuff. So you're, like a a re- you're very busy. I've You've always liked to be busy in death as in life. Yeah. So no rest for you. There's no heaven. There's no. 
place where you can just chill out. Not a big believer in the old heaven. You're just being a warm breeze and politically agitated. Exactly. I think that's it. Yeah. And I mean, you know, you've got your you've got your death ahead of you, haven't you? You've got to make the best of it. Love it. Well, I've got news for you. I'm afraid there is a heaven. I'm so sorry. And you're you're going to it and it's filled with your favourite thing. What's your favourite thing? My favourite thing is um, anything to do with animals, really. So it's filled with lovely little sort of puppyish, kittenish animals. It's an animal sanctuary and it's filled with puppies and kittens and it's fucking great. They're everywhere. They are, you come in, they all run at you. There's so many of them. You, you can't see the floor for puppies and kittens. There's also puppy kittens, which is a half puppy, half kitten, hind legs of a cat, front of a dog. Very sweet. They're all excited to see you. There's also kitten puppies, front of a kitten, back of a puppy. All excited to see you. They want to talk to you about your life. They want to talk about it through film, which is weird for kitten puppies. The first thing they ask you is, what is the first film you remember seeing, Callie Beaton? I love that question coming from a little cuppy. That's what I'm going to call them, little cuppies. Little cuppy. And they probably won't be pooing, will they? Because it's heavenly. So probably no poo and no wee. No poo in heaven. Yeah. Famously. Amazing. So my first film that I remember seeing, and I should say I'm not as old as this would make me seem, or I was not as old. So Whistle Down the Wind, which I'm sure you know. Yeah, so it's it's actually a film from 1961, and I obviously did not watch it in 1961 because I hadn't been born. But it was a film that I saw in the 70s when I was a little girl. I reckon I was probably about six or seven. I was quite little. And it was Hayley Mills starred in it. It was actually written by her by her mum, I think. Mary Hayley Bell, I think is Hayley Mills' um, mum. And do, do you know that? I'm sure you know about the film. So I know the story and the script, but I don't know facts about the film, if you're going to tell me. Yeah, so the, well, the thing that, I, that stood out to me were a couple of things. One was it was... I didn't think about this at the time, but all the main characters are children. So they're all, so the oh. protagonists are all children. And that's, I don't think, I, I mean, like things like, I guess, like the railway children, on, I suppose that's also children protagonists, but I saw that kind of later. But it was the fact it was children and loads of children and all the big scenes were all little children. But it was also, I didn't realise it's the whole thing's like an allegory for them thinking, they, they think they found Jesus Christ, that's what they, they found this kind of guy that's actually, I think, a murderer and he's hiding in a barn. He's a criminal anyway, a wanted criminal. And they think he's Jesus and they all come to the barn and he tells them stories and they all think they are more and more children from like the little village kind of come to the barn and meet this guy. And I should say he's not in any way sinister towards the children, but he is a wanted man. And then at the end, he gets found by the police and he comes out with his arms outstretched like the sort of crucifixion. And I remember once he was. I didn't know you could cry about a film or a book or a, I just did, as a little child. I don't know if you, I don't yeah. think I realised that was a thing. And I found myself just absolutely sobbing, but being really embarrassed that I was crying in front of my parents and my brother. And it really yeah. moved me at an age when I didn't know film had the power to move you like that. Yeah. So he gets arrested at the end. Yeah, he gets taken away. Like I don't think you know what's. I don't think you know what's where. He's. I'm pretty sure he's obviously going to end up in prison. I guess. And and all the children are there. Like there's this big end scene. And the. I mean, this is my plastic memory, as one has. So maybe if you watched it, you'd be like, no, that isn't how. It It definitely ends with him getting taken away. But my memory of it is all the different children, more and more, had come along. And there's this massive sort of scene where he goes away, and then all these children, like they've lost this massive part of their lives, and this guy that they thought was their sort of idol and he's gone oh heavy very moving first 
I mean, great first film, and it's never never come up on this. So great shout. What is the film that scared you the most? And do you like being scared? I really hate being scared. I'm quite brave in life. Like I don't, I live on my own and I don't worry about anyone breaking in and I'll walk down the dodgiest street if it's a shortcut. So I feel sort of oddly invincible. Well, I did until I realised no one's invincible. But I don't like being scared in films. I grew up as a teenager in the 80s hanging out with mainly boys still. I don't know why I was still hanging yeah. out with boys because by then I was at a mixed school, but I still was hanging out, I guess, for other reasons, like you like you would be hanging out with boys as a teenager. And we used to watch like Damon Omen 3 and Nightmare on Elm Street and Poltergeist and those kind of, what well, I now, and The Shining. We watched yeah. all that kind of stuff, which I now think those are all quite scary things to watch. And I absolutely have always hated anything like that. I hate, and I'm a BAFTA voter, so it's kind of awkward if there's a whole load of, I mean, you do have to watch them. <laughs> there's a whole load of stuff, I don't really want to watch that. It's not my genre. Yeah. So I'm pathetic. I get so easily scared. Yeah. I don't like dark things. Interesting. I like well, fluffy lambs and puppies and kittens, as you know. You like you like pittens. You'd be amazed or not how many comedians on here hate horror. So many. More than like it. Far more. I think it's to do with control. I think it's because we're all control freaks. What do you think about horror? I love horror, but I, I, I get why people don't like it, as in I completely understand. I like jumping off cliffs. Oh, I've done right. all the kind of extreme, I like extreme things to experience. So you don't mind things that could kill you, but you don't like the idea of things that could kill you. There you go. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Interesting. That's exactly it. Yeah, I just want to go straight in for the kill. I don't want to just yeah. piss around. You'd rather be chased know. by Freddy Krueger than watch a film about Freddy Krueger. Yeah. Because then you've got a chance, you could control what, you've got a, it's, it's in your hands yeah. how you respond. Yeah. Yeah. Is that also a first for you on the podcast? Yeah, the first person who's actively <laughs> wished for Freddy Krueger to chase this so they have a chance. Yeah. Listen, I'm unusual. Uh, what's the, what, so what's the film that scared you the most? Well, aside from those sort of teenage ones, yeah. which did already scare me, and I did think about The Shining, because I've watched that a couple of times and it scared the shit out of me, obviously, but... I'm going to go for Cape Fear, but the, the remake, yes. so the 1991 love Cape it. Fear with Robert De Niro. Mike Scorsese, I love that film. I yeah. It. It's a great film, underrated. So I, I went to see this without knowing what I was going to see. And I didn't really know. I just knew it was Robert De Niro. And I went with my mate, Jill, who I worked with back then. And this would have been when we were in our kind of early 20s. And I just didn't really know what it was. I knew it had Robert De Niro and I knew it had Nick Nolte and who I really liked. And I just had no idea what was about to befall me. And I remember watching mm. it in a cinema in Notting Hill and just absolutely shitting myself. And the bit when he's under the car and at the end when he's, I mean, yeah. even when it gets beyond ridiculous at the end and he's talking in tongues and wearing a frock and everything else, I just found the whole, I, I just gripped my friend Jill and the arm of my seat and screamed about seven times. And I still remember the adrenaline surge I got watching that Cape Fear. It's great, Cape Fear. It's really great. It's very exciting and fast. But I also, it's one of my favourite portraits of a marriage. Cape Fear is one of my favourite married couple films. Definitely. I think they're a really interesting married couple that you don't see. And they're very deep, like for a film that's like a mainstream thriller, it's got a really interesting subplot about their marriage which is quite dark and difficult and complicated and it's great great film but yeah it is also fucking scary 
I was saying it's also dark. I think that's the other, what you said just captured it perfectly. There's so many sort of dark, weird nuances to everything. There's no port in a storm. It's not like, oh, here's a sweet little family and now this bad thing's going to happen. Yeah. It's just everything is dark and weird and nuanced and nothing. You don't feel like the ground is safe anywhere, emotionally or physically. And the whole thing I found extremely impactful. It's great. Hacks is back for season three, and so is the official Hacks podcast. In each episode, Hacks creators Lucia and Yellow, Paul W. Downs, and Jen Stadsky speak with cast and crew members to unpack the Emmy-winning comedy series. You'll hear Hannah Einbinder and Gene Smart speak to their on-screen dynamic, along with Hacks writer and actor Pat Regan, on how their improv experience helped them when shooting scenes and what it was like writing scripts for specific actors. You'll also hear from crew members like the costume designers on what it was like creating the world that Deborah and Ava inhabit. Hear stories from the show's writer's room, on-set antics, and more. Watch Hacks, streaming exclusively on Max, and listen to the official Hacks podcast on Max or wherever you get your podcasts. Apple Card is the perfect cashback rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. Maureen, what's this I hear about you going to film school? I am. I want to gain valuable skills while making films and developing my creativity. So I'm attending the New York Film Academy. I'm thinking about becoming one of them people that writes the numbers on the title board. NIFA is a very respected film school. I hear they offer a variety of options to meet your educational goals, whether you want a BFA or MFA degree or want to learn at a quicker pace with a short-term programme. That's right. They've got workshops and summer camps in filmmaking, acting, cinematography, screenwriting, producing, game design, musical theatre and more. Are you attending in New York? Might do. They have multiple campuses in some amazing locations like New York, LA, Miami, Italy, Australia and online. And you can learn more about the New York Film Academy at nyfa.edu. That's nyfa.edu. Thanks, Maureen. What is the film that made you cry the most? Now you're a crier. A massive crier. I mean, yeah. such a crier. Yeah, I never was a public crier until my sort of 30s and 40s. A massive crier. You wow. probably won't meet many women in their middle midlife who didn't learn to cry. A lot of hormones, a lot of crying. I think it's a big cry. Oh, you think it was, it was hormones that changed in your 30s? I think hormones make you, even the non-crying women become crying women, I think, when the hormones start to go all over the place. But yeah, I'm a, I'm a you know, I was, yeah, big crier, big crier. What's the film that made you cry the most? I was torn between Kramer versus Kramer, which was another yeah. one that made me cry long before I thought you would cry that much about those things and long before I became a parent. But instead, yeah. so that would be my close second, but I'm going to go for Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind. Ah, oh, what a movie. What a movie. And, I mean, you and anyone listening will know why that would be, but it's so beautifully done. And to watch a love affair through the eyes of it being erased, what an incredible idea. And then that help, helpless, hopeless this is a massive mistake. We don't want it erased. We want it still to exist. Just such an incredible concept and so beautifully done. And the music and it just felt to me 
I don't know when it was like early 2000s, I guess. And it yeah. felt to me, and even though some of the music we obviously knew really well, like Mr. Blue Sky, it just felt like something I'd never seen before and a whole different way to make a film. And I just, it, I watched it twice in fairly quick succession. I just loved it. Yeah. And it's still, my, I just think it's the most heartbreaking premise isn't it it's also one of those films that, that i realize now i'm like it, it what it was like 20 years ago and people still reference it like it the concept of it is so now used to describe other things you know what i mean like people go well it's kind of like you know in eternal sunshine like that's the barometer in the same way that the matrix i don't think anything ever topped the matrix like the matrix is still a reference that you say well it's the matrix <laughs> do you know what i mean and I think exactly. Eternal Sunshine is the same. Nothing Definitely. has replaced it. And it was sort of way ahead of itself as well. When you think about the idea of us, you know, memory being plastic and AI and how we can sort of relay the tracks of our life digitally and everything. It's sort of, even though it wasn't obviously a digital thing, it was a kind of, you know, chemical-based thing that happened. Yeah. But it's really, it was massively ahead of itself, wasn't it? Because well, at the time... I think even neuroscience, we sort of thought memories and like it was kind of laid down. I don't think neuroplasticity yeah. was even much of a thing. So it just was, so, yeah, just really powerful and so heartbreaking. And it makes me think every time you fall in love and you think about throwing it away, give it the yeah. eternal sunshine test and see if you really want to throw it away. It's really beautiful. And the, and the fact that they're going to do it all again. Exactly. What a lovely, like, hopeful ending. Yeah. Excellent answer. What is the film that you love? People don't like it. The critics hate it, but you love it unconditionally. Again, there's a couple that came to mind, but I'm going to go with Point Break. Hey. Oh, I suppose it probably wasn't adored at the time. It was probably adored. It's probably one of those ones where people have retrofitted it now to go, it was yeah. a bit shit when at the time it definitely got, it definitely got slated. I think it was seen as a sort of bit of a naff, I don't think anyone was holding it up as a sort of work of enormous art. It was obviously pre-Rotten Tomatoes, so how will we ever know? But I remember <laughs> loving it. I basically, the, my, te- my holding it up against the light of was it critically acclaimed or not was that everyone took the piss out of me for liking it so much. <laughs> you were ahead of I the was cat. the focus group. So everyone I knew was like, you're an absolute dick for liking this film so much. So I think yeah. that means it wasn't well received. I think you're right. I think I think it was misunderstood. It seemed like trash when it was, in fact, art. It was art. It had, I mean, I was a skydiver at the time. And really? People, yes. <sighs> so when I say I like to jump off things and out of things, I mean it. And I, I'm sure you know this, but Patrick Swayze was a skydiver and he did his own, I'm sure you know, he always used to do his own stunts. And he did his own, that amazing culmination sort of skydiving scene That's Patrick Swayze, no stunt double, and he did 55 jumps to get that right, 55. So I think that alone, what other film could you say that about? Probably not a one, whether or not it was Patrick Swayze. Probably Mission Impossible, one of the Mission Impossibles. Tell me this. How many times have you jumped out of a plane? Well over 200. Really? So you could now do the wingsuit. Yeah, the wingsuit depends on how fast you're trying to fall, as you probably know. So depending, as a woman, you tend to need a slick suit. So you need something without much by way of wings. You always have to have the bits people can hold on to so you can meet other skydivers. But you need to cut through the air quickly because everyone obviously falls at terminal velocity, but you reach terminal velocity marginally more slowly as a slightly smaller build woman than a big built guy. So And that, that second... Or two seconds is a hell of a lot to lose yeah. when you're when you've only got a minute or whatever it is before you're hitting the ground. What? So you have to have 
more... You need to be able to cut through the air more quickly on the exit from the aircraft so that you all Oh, end. you need less. Yeah. Right, right, yes. right, right. So, so, you need, so you need less resistance. So yeah. you need. So as a woman, you have what's called a slick suit, which is very tight to your body and made of a fabric that, and is very much to cut to be aerodynamic. But doesn't that mean if you had a wingsuit, you'd fly sl- better? Yes, longer and Yeah, but it would take slower. you a long... Yeah. Yes, but it would take you a long time. Yes, exactly. So if you're doing something on your own, you do what you like. But if you're trying to do formation stuff, you need to... Right. You need to be keeping with the pack, which when I used to do, I haven't done one for, God, 15 years. And when I was doing it, it was still wasn't completely male. But in keeping with the theme of the podcast, yeah. it was quite male. They used to call you a Doris if you were a female skydiver. That's what they called you, a Doris. That was all right. I stopped when I had kids. Yeah. And it uh, became not so much that I was scared I was going to die because it's actually quite a safe sport. It's massively regulated. You're much more dangerous to play rugby or whatever than yeah. to skydive. But it was just the time you have to if you skydive in the UK, you're spending many hours at drop zones waiting for the weather. And when you've got small children, it doesn't tend to go down well. If you say, I'm just going to fuck off for 48 hours and see if I get one skydive in, everyone seems to think that's quite selfish. Wow. Absolutely fascinating. What is the film that you used to love? but you've watched it recently and you've thought, I don't like this anymore, for whatever reason. Well, the test for this was with the kids, really. So when I try and anyone who has kind of slightly older kids, I'm sure it's told you this and will tell you this. So you sort of watch, you want to show them something you absolutely love. You're like, wait till you see this. It's amazing. And it happens with music. You're like, listen to this. You know, I grew up loving this and it just sounds so shit when you play it to them through their ears. (laughs) And they're like, huh? Loyal Karna, it ain't. Uh, and that happens with um, with movies as well. And Wayne's World was one where I told my daughter she would love it. Yeah. And we were on holiday together. And I said, no, let's, we always watch, you know, movies in bed together at the end of the light. If we've gone out or whatever, we'll, we'll curl up and watch a movie. And I was like, you'll love it. It's so funny. And within about half an hour, I was like, this is like one of the least PC, <laughs> fail the Bechdel test kind of bit part women with people layering at their asses. You know, it was just, I was like, this is, and she was, a, she just, and also even the bits that were still funny to her as a Gen Z, she was like, this is just diabolical. So the comedy didn't translate. Some of it yeah. still translated to me, but not enough actually. And I loved, I just loved that film. So I was quite shocked that it so badly failed the test of time. Well, comedy rarely does age well, sadly. But I think someone explained it on this and I was like, that's a very good theory. And it's because comedy is is usually transgressive when it happens. But then society catches up to the thing it's transgressed. And so then it becomes dated. Ah, so it goes from transgressive to retrograde in one yeah. swoop. Yeah. Because when the zeitgeist catches up. Yeah, it's suddenly like, oh my God. Yeah. Like it, it was outrageous one way and then it becomes outrageous the other way. Like, Jesus. That's true. Yeah. And I think particularly because it was such a parody on that sort of boys mm. bedroom nerdy, there was something there was something so sort of 90s about what that was trying to say it was. And at the time I was working, I don't think I was quite working for MTV. I was about to start working for MTV. So that whole world was a world we inhabited in Beavis and Butthead yeah. and the telly and and if people, if you were into that kind of culture and however we used to watch Saturday Night Live, I can't remember how we got it because it wasn't really league, it wasn't easy to watch here. But all of that stuff, if you were into it, which was sort of underground culture over here, yeah. then that meant so much, that film. And all of that is irrelevant now to kids, I guess, my daughter's age. Well, they were very sweet, Wayne and Garth, and nowadays they'd probably be incels. If they had the incel, they would you know be. I mean? be. That's it. It's gone from yeah. cool to incel, and that's a bad transition by any stretch. <laughs> yeah, that's pretty bad. 
What's the film that means the most to you? Not necessarily the film itself is good, but the experience you had around seeing it will always make it special to you, Kelly Beaton. This will sound like a weird choice because, uh, so it's the film art that was kind of the soundtrack to me falling in love with my kid's dad, which would sound like a beautiful story were it not for the fact I split up with my kid's dad 20 years ago. So this may sound like a really weird choice, but we're really, really close still. So we're really a very sort of blended family and... And he's always been a big part of my life and, of course, my kids' life. And so it does sound weird when we're talking about a broken up relationship. But I just remember meeting him when we both were working in telly in the early 90s. And he's Dutch and he'd come over from Holland to sort of do a bit of summer cover for the Dutch guy that did the voiceovers because we used to have a feed that went into Holland and and the Benelux. So I got to know him and we loved like, we loved the soundtrack to that movie. Like we were both really into music and Harry Connick Jr. at the time was really cool and everybody was just mm. finding out who he was. And I always loved Nora Ephron's writing and watching when Harry met Sally and falling in love with somebody with a film wow. that was such a, a, even the sort of vignettes of the kind of older couples and all of those things yeah. just hadn't been done before, as you know. And the fact they were a sort of unlikely couple and it was a sort of messy love story felt so apt so I think the Nora Ephron Harry Connick Jr and the film itself the sort of combination was a kind of Venn diagram that led to me yeah falling in love and having two kids with a lovely man that's fucking nice that's very nice all right no no follow-up questions that's perfect (laughs) what's the um film you most relate to this is going to sound like a weird one but it's probably Gloria Bell, which was, did you see, there was about, I don't know, three, four years ago, and it was Julianne Moore. Julianne Moore. Yeah. Yes. And it sa- this that. sounds like one that should go in the kind of naff basket when you hear kind of the what it is. And, and for anyone who hasn't seen it, it it's um, it's her sort of in LA and she's a divorcee and she always danced, she danced, she always used to dance, go to clubs and stuff, even within her unhappy marriage. And then she ends up having this whole sort of, it does sound really naff when you describe it, this whole kind of new lease of life, I guess, in her 50s, probably. And it all mm. cut, the reason it's called Gloria is because it ends with her doing this amazing kind of dance to to um, to Laura Branigan's Gloria. But it is more subtle than it sounds. And I do like the fact, I'm in the process of, I would like this because I'm writing a book about this, that we sort of think, we think that women in midlife might just about be able to hang on to what they had Like maybe I think that's the kind of narrative. We think that's quite a forward thinking narrative. You might not lose everything in midlife, but we're at our absolute peak in midlife. And we might only just be starting with what we're capable of. And we might be having the first of many massive, powerful reinventions. And so I love the ambition in it and the way she portrays it. So it's not a sort of naff midlife crisis. It's like I've only just started is the message. And I think that's a brilliant message to see a woman in her 50s portraying on screen incredible i love her she can do no wrong anyway. she can do no wrong i even um yes i watched what was that film with her and steve carell is it crazy stupid love yeah, which i great. didn't watch at the time and because i thought it looked so enough i ended up watching that as a sort of like you know yeah. kind of like shitty like i watch a thing and then i was like oh god this is real. i like her in everything i thought it was yeah, good she's never never been bad never been, never bad. been bad very beautiful beautiful Ooh. speaking of which what's the sexiest film you've ever seen I think it's got to be, for my sort of age group, this is probably not that unusual, it's got to be Thelma and Louise because that's nice. when we discovered Brad Pitt. Yeah. 
And it was sexy anyway, because Gina Davis and Susan Sarandon were so sexy. And at the time, it hadn't occurred to me that I would ever go on to date women and that I fancied women. It wasn't sort of on my, wasn't really thinking that I did. But I guess looking back at it, I did. So it was them and it was him. And it was the whole, but that, yeah, the sort of him and Gina Davis sort of sex scene. I mean, you know, once you've seen that, who can unsee that? And who would wish to? <laughs> it's a heck of a first film for Brad Pitt. It's yes. a heck of an entrance. You know what I mean? Naked in a Stetson. What other entrance do you want? No wonder he's the biggest film star. Incredible. There's a subcategory to this question. Troubling boners, worrying why don't. Film you found arousing that you weren't sure you should. This is so bad, I'm not sure I should disclose it because it's a really dark one to have found sexy because it was a film that was meant to get the question (laughs) it was meant to make you think that sort of sleazy sex was disgusting and it was shame it was michael fassbender depicted as a horrible disgusting (laughs) 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 i just thought I couldn't. You thought, this is aspirational. <laughs> I couldn't stop thinking, but it's Michael. Look, I, you know, it's yeah. Michael Fassbender who is so sexy, and everybody, <laughs> my friendship group, were like, "What is?" I was like, "But you must have fancied him a bit in it," and they were like, "No." Same way we didn't no. fancy him in Twelve Years a Slave, and I was like. <laughs> <laughs> Did you find that one challenging that as well? That one I did not. I, I drew the yeah. line of fancying him in that one. But but this one, I think because it was in the general arena of sex and it was him and it was... Yeah. And that, I don't know if you know where they filmed the, the scene, you know, against the with that floor-to-ceiling glass in the hotel. That's yeah. the standard in New York. And you can walk right. along the High Line and see that room. I've walked along the High Line and seen that room many times. <laughs> That's such a great answer. And now I'm thinking about that film, I'm like... I liked that film, but I don't remember thinking, oh, God, sex is bad. I don't think it. if that was the message, I maybe didn't get it. You and I watched it and thought this is an aspirational Yeah, we were like, imagine having all that sex and being hot and being able to afford to do it in a five-star hotel with random people. That's so cool. (laughs) You you and I thought the title meant, what a shame we can't afford this (laughs) lifestyle. That's exactly it, yeah. (laughs) So, so yeah, it did not bring out any shame in me, apart from a shame I wasn't there. Yeah, no, that's a good answer. Well done. What's objectively, might not be your favourite, but objectively, objectively, objectively the greatest film of all time, Kelly Beaton? Such a tough one, but I think it's got to be One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest for me. Fantastic. And I think it's, well, and I'm going to maybe retrofitting why I think it's my son ended up playing Billy Bibbit in a school production. And that, if ever I hadn't found the you know, the kind of dialogue powerful I bloody did after watching my son doing it. But that, yeah. everything about that film and the the kind of end scene and the kind of pillow over the face and the breaking through the window and nurse and all the characters. I mean, there isn't really a character yeah. in that film that isn't outstanding in terms of the writing and the portrayal. I don't think there's a weak link. Yeah. And it's so beautifully sort of filmed and again just not a just very subtle as well in lots of ways for something at that at that time about that subject and I think if the test is and I always think about this when I'm voting for films and I try and remember I try and always think what's the footprint afterwards how do they resonate or not 
And that one just has always resonated with me. And every time I see it, yeah, it just sort of blows me away. So, I, I mean, it's so hard to pick the the film, but I'd say if I was forced to pick it, it would be that. I love it. It's a great answer. And it should come up here more and it doesn't. So you get 10 points for that. Wow. You finally started scoring points. Amazing. What is the film you could or have watched the most over and over again? Again, this comes back to, I've mentioned my daughter a lot, but we watch a lot of films together. It's going to be Bridesmaids with her specifically. She and I, and we we sort of have to tell ourselves how long, we have to ration Bridesmaids. So we have to go, uh, when did we last watch it? And if it's too uh, recent, we go, oh, we probably have to wait a bit. So we have to sort of make great. ourselves watch a couple in between sort of things. And we don't see each other you know, that often because she lives away. So yeah, Bridesmaids, I'd say she and I have watched that a lot. And I've probably watched it a good couple of times without her as well. We also have talked about this. Is Bridesmaids hasn't been topped. There hasn't been a bridesmaid since bridesmaid. No. And I think that's going to be a hell of an ask for there to be one because yeah. every time I watch it, another bit comes in and I'm like, that's so like, that's so well written. It's And everything just comes together. And people who think it's like a naff kind of shitty sort of comedy thing on, you know, that you might watch kind of late no, night because nothing, it's not, it's so, and they're so It's brilliant. like the last exceptionally great Hollywood mainstream cinema comedy. I can't think what's been as good. That was and like with a big female film. protagonists. Who are so good and so varied. Yeah. It's just a fucking funny, well-made. It's great. It's great. What is at the other end of the scale? We don't like to be too negative. What's the worst film you've ever seen? That's the other thing about voting for things is you see a lot and you see things that you think are going to be shit and then you go and see them. You still have to go see it and you're like, I was right, that was shit. And you wouldn't want <laughs> the pain to go see it, but you obviously need to see stuff. So I've seen some shit because of getting you know, having to see some shit. And it, amidst all of the shit, Mother. Did you watch Mother? I, I did watch Mother. I love it, but I absolutely understand that. I, it's tell a lot me of why you love it, because I'd love to hear the counterpoint to my dismissal of it. Because there's nothing like it. I, I like anything where I'm like, well, I've never seen anything like that. That's very it's, true. I agree with you on that. Nothing like it's, it. It's wild. I definitely wasn't bored. I was sort of really stressed by it like it was like having a panic attack for ages yes I kind of the last half hour was like Jesus Christ and it kept getting wilder you sort of thought well we must have peaked but then it kept going and I just thought I've never seen anything like this this was fucking wild whatever just happened I certainly wasn't bored and I was fully engaged for the two hours I was this definitely was a wild engaged. Nightmare right. Yeah. Well, I you, you thinking surely now they've reached the peak. That was me thinking, oh, surely now it should have ended. So I was at that <laughs> right. point for the last I was like, okay, now, now <laughs> it's gotta end. And I think it was also whenever I go to see those films that haven't come out yet, you'll know this. Like you don't because you haven't seen the films and the marketing campaign, it's really funny yeah. how different your opinion is. I saw La La Land not even knowing what it was about. I hadn't even read the blurb right. and I just knew Ryan Gosling was going to be at a Q&A. So I was like, I'm in. <laughs> and then I, so the whole of that opening sequence of La La Land, I didn't know what to expect. I had no idea yeah. that's what the movie, and right. it, I think it must have had double the impact at least because I didn't know. And similarly yeah. with Mother, I had no idea what I was going to see. It's, it sounds like even when you did, it was surprising. I yeah. just thought it had this incredible cast and I yeah. just couldn't stand it. I don't think you're wrong, as in I know so many people who really hated it and it's incredibly disturbing and weird. I just don't ever want to be bored and I definitely don't think it's boring. 
it definitely wasn't boring. I didn't want to yeah. leave because it was boring. Yeah. Yeah. And it it's was upsetting. definitely an uncomfortable watch and distressing. Yeah. Yeah. And did not get wild. my vote. Did not get my vote. That's fair. But it's also technically, and maybe you don't, it's technically very impressive. I did give it a technical, yes, because you do vote yeah. on those things as well. I, I completely think in terms of production and I think there was a hell of a lot about it that stood up. Yeah, but you, you were like, but why? If you look at the why? technicalities of making a film, but as a punter watching a film, I was like, no, thank you. Yeah, totally fair. You're in comedy, you're very funny. What's the film that made you laugh the most? Going for an oldie but a goodie, Life of Brian. It's great. It's the first film I remember, absolutely. And I probably wouldn't have watched it. It came out in the 70s. I'd have been, when it came out, I'd have probably been nine or 10. So I very much doubt I would have watched it at nine or 10. I can't imagine who'd have taken me to watch it. But I would have watched it not long after that. I don't, so right. I, I, it was my first kind of exposure to, I guess, probably to the Pythons. It was, I think at the time things like Not the Nine O'Clock News were on telly and I was starting to think about that sort of type of stuff that was going on, which yeah. felt very different. It was obviously pre-things like The Young Ones and it just laid the ground. And when I look back at it, I mean, I pissed myself without knowing why I was pissing myself, but I just found it. And I don't think I'd seen anything so absurd. I don't think, obviously, I wouldn't have used the word irreverent but obviously that's exactly what it was. Yeah. I was brought up in a sort of quite a traditional family. You went to church on Sundays. I just absolutely loved it. I thought it was amazing. And I still think it's brilliant. Yeah, it's brilliant. It's their best film. Definitely their it's, best film. It's, mo it's moving. The ending is amazing. It actually makes sense as a story. I love it. It's a masterpiece. Yeah. Yeah. Really well made. Seems real. It's great. And now Michael Palin is a is a nearby neighbour and I spend my whole life no. hoping I'll bump into him getting a coffee, which very occasionally happens. Yeah, he lives between me and Lou Sanders. Where have you said hello? Oh my god. That's the imagine that. Imagine how happy he is living between me and Lou. He'll yeah. be like, imagine Lucky boy. every day hoping he bumps into one of us, probably. <laughs> what a treat. Have you said hello to him? I have seen him a couple of times around and about, yeah, but I don't want to be um, you know, I don't want to yeah. fangirl him. So that's a difficult person to meet. Like I, I sort of he would be on my list of people. I don't I wouldn't really want to meet him because I like him so much. A, I wouldn't know what to say in a brief period of time. And B, if I if I had a bad interaction, it would ruin my life. You'd have you to, know, I'd just rather not. You'd have to garrot yourself on a long scarf and a convertible if it didn't go. Yeah, well. that's probably what happened. Wasn't yeah. It? Hacks is back for season three, and so is the official Hacks podcast. In each episode, Hacks creators Lucia Agnello, Paul W. Downs, and Jen Statsky speak with cast and crew members to unpack the Emmy-winning comedy series. You'll hear Hannah Einbinder and Gene Smart speak to their on-screen dynamic, along with Hacks writer and actor Pat Regan, on how their improv experience helped them when shooting scenes and what it was like writing scripts for specific actors. You'll also hear from crew members like the costume designers on what it was like creating the world that Deborah and Ava inhabit. Hear stories from the show's writer's room, on-set antics, and more. Watch Hacks streaming exclusively on Max and listen to the official Hacks podcast on Max or wherever you get your podcasts. Maureen, what's this I hear about you going to film school? I am. I want to gain valuable skills while making films and developing my creativity. So I'm attending the New York Film Academy. I'm thinking about becoming one of them people that writes the numbers on the title board. NIFA is a very respected film school. 
I hear they offer a variety of options to meet your educational goals, whether you want a BFA or MFA degree or want to learn at a quicker pace with a short-term programme. That's right. They've got workshops and summer camps in filmmaking, acting, cinematography, screenwriting, producing, game design, musical theatre and more. Are you attending in New York? Might do. They have multiple campuses in some amazing locations like New York, LA, Miami, Italy, Australia and online. And you can learn more about the New York Film Academy at nyfa.edu. That's nyfa.edu. Thanks, Maureen. Hey, girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher. I'm so excited to tell you about the brand new series of The Girlfriends. In season one, we told you about the murder of Gail Katz at the hands of my ex-boyfriend, Bob. At one point, a woman's torso washed up on Staten Island and was misidentified as Gail. She spent nine years in Gail's grave, and then she just disappeared. It's almost like it's become this moral obligation to find her. And that's what we're going to do. Find this missing girlfriend and tell her story. With the help of some of your favorite girlfriends from season one, like my producer, Anna. Oh, my God. My friend, Dr. Mindy Shapiro. Hi, it's Dr. Shapiro, and I'd like to speak with the deputy medical examiner. And of course, Gail's sister, Elaine Katz. Having no closure, it kills you. Join us as we try to solve a 35-year-old cold case. It's not going to be easy, but it's going to be one hell of a ride. (gasps) What? I can't believe this. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Kelly Beaton, you have been an absolute delight. However, when you reached 45 years old, you went on your own for a drive. You just bought a convertible. You were like, I made some money. I'm going to treat myself. My daughter's in Spain. My son's somewhere else. The father's somewhere else. I'm going for a drive. You went out. Sun was out. Let me put the roof down. Still a bit of a chilly wind. So I will wear this long, long scarf that I bought. You put the scarf on. You went for a drive. You went on the A4. <laughs> you're on the A4 and you're heading towards. But, 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 so beginning with B <laughs> that's on the A4. Brockington or something. You're heading to Brockington and having a lovely time. And as the wind catches your scarf and you're singing along to raindrops keep falling from my head, the scarf gets caught in the back tyre. And within an instant, your head is popped off <laughs> and rolls across the motorway. It gets run over by five different cars and a truck and then squashed like a watermelon. You, your body still holding the <laughs> wheel, foot still on the accelerator, keep driving for ages. It's a long straight road, the A4. At some point, there's a turn. Thankfully, it turns to the right because you veer straight off into a bush. The car falls down a ditch, bang, explodes as all cars do in films when they fall <laughs> off sides of things. So there's a big fireball over here and a watermelon squashed head. I'm walking along the A4 with a coffee and you know what I'm like. I say, has anyone seen uh, Callie Beaton? I heard there was an explosion up ahead. They go, yeah, there's no evidence that she's been in either of these places. <laughs> they go, but what about this big splat over here? So we stop the cars and go, bloody hell, I'd recognise I'd recognize that strand of hair anyway. That's got to be her. I get a digger, I have to dig up the tarmac because you're properly 
immersed into the ground. We dig up bits of road, stick as much as you as there is, which isn't much. It's just the remains of your head, bits of brain, stuff it all in a coffin. But there's more tarmac than I was expecting, so it's rammed. It's only enough room in this coffin now for me to slip one DVD into the side of the coffin for you to take across to the other side. On the other side, it's movie night every night. What film are you taking to show the cuppies and pittens in heaven? Only one possible choice, Little Miss Sunshine. Beautiful. And the cubbies and pittens are going to love it. And you're going to sit with them, have a cuddle and watch it. Kelly Beaton, what a lovely time. Is there anything you would like to tell people to listen to or watch coming up? My podcast, Namaste Motherfuckers, uh, weekly podcast. So that is very much worth uh, checking out. So, um, and my yeah book coming out, but not soon enough. It's worth plugging that, but stay tuned for that. And all my live stuff, uh, yeah, you can see on my website, all the other stuff I'm up to, bits of telly and radio and, you know, all kinds of stuff. Do you have a title for the book? I do, but I'm not going to say it yet. It's catchy. It is catchy. But if I said it, I'd have to explain it and then... Okay. We'd lose all the beautiful crescendo of this entire experience. <laughs> it would turn into an elevator pitch for Penguin. Gally Beaton, <laughs> thank you so much for your time and for doing this. Good day to you. Thank you for having me. So that was episode 265. Head over to the Patreon at patreon.com forward slash Brett Goldstein for the extra secrets and video with Callie. Go to Apple Podcasts, give us a five-star rating, but don't talk about the show. Talk about the film that means the most to you and why. Everyone loves reading that. Makes them all cry. We really appreciate it. Thank you very much for listening. I hope you're all well. Thanks so much to Callie for doing it. Thanks to Scroobius Pip and the Distraction Pieces Network. Thanks to Buddy Peace for producing it. Thanks to iHeartMedia and Will Ferrell's Big Money Players Network for hosting it. Thanks to Adam Richardson for the graphics and Lisa Lydon for the photography. Come and join me next week for a fucking smasher of a guest. You are going to really like that one. So that is it for now. In the meantime, have a lovely week. And please, now more than ever, be excellent to each other. Sometimes I dream of becoming an actor. Have you ever dreamt of becoming an actor? Maureen, what is it you think I'd do for a living? Never mind. Sounds like you need the New York Film Academy. NIFA offers workshops, BFA and MFA degrees and summer camps in filmmaking, acting, journalism and more. Online and on campuses across the globe. To make films alongside industry professionals, explore more at nyfa.edu. Thanks, Brett. Thank you, Maureen. Hey, girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher, back with another season of the global number one podcast, The Girlfriends. Last time, we investigated the murder of Gail Katz. This time, we're uncovering the identity of the woman who was buried in Gail's grave for a decade before she disappeared. Join me and the rest of the club as we tell her story. 
Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Imagine you ask two people the same seven questions. I'm Minnie Driver, and this was the idea I set out to explore in my podcast, Mini Questions. This year, we bring a whole new group of guests to answer the same seven questions, including Courtney Cox, Rob Delaney, Liz Fair, and many, many more. Join me on season three of Mini Questions on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your favorite podcasts. Seven questions, limitless answers.